You are listening to the Parkview Church Podcast. To learn more about Parkview Church, including our gathering times in Palm Coast, Florida, visit us online at parkviewlife.com. So last week we launched a series entitled Triggered. Why do we overreact and what do we do about it? We began in Psalm 22 looking at David's overreaction, his over-exaggeration, how he found himself in a place of aloneness and isolation, why he felt so alone, why he felt so isolated, why he got so discouraged in his life. We're not really sure. It could have been a convergence of factors. It could have been one thing. It could have been a perfect storm of another things. Scripture doesn't tell us. But he overreacts. He overresponds. He overexaggerates. He even wrote things about him that actually didn't even happen. But as we see in our life, we also saw in David's life that God can take those less than stellar moments of our life those overreactions and over-exaggerations, and he can redeem those things for his good, and he can resurrect those things for his glory. And even though David said things that weren't even true, they became very true. 500 years later, we end up seeing that Psalm 22 was actually, in my opinion, the greatest psalm that David wrote. It was a messianic psalm about the Messiah who would come. And so Jesus not only checked off over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, he checked off eight prophecies alone in Psalm 22 that David wrote. David didn't even know he was writing about the Messiah who would come. But the Spirit of God moved upon David. He writes this uh, prolific messianic prophecy. Jesus fulfills all eight prophecies in Psalm 22, which, by the way, one guy fulfilling eight different prophecies was a, was a mathematical impossibility. And yet Christ fulfilled uh, eventually over 300 prophecies. So even in David's overreaction and overexaggeration, God redeems that and resurrects that. Now, we're going to fast forward this weekend in the Old Testament from Psalm 22, and we're going to go to the seventh, the end of the seventh era of the Old Testament, which is the exile era. Now, the exile era was when God's people, the children of Israel, were prisoners of war in Persia. They were in exile for 70 years. Jerusalem had been decimated. The walls had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. The Babylonians took them off into captivity. Persia conquered Babylon, which, by the way, the story we're going to look at today, you're talking about one one of the greatest empires in all of world history. We would describe the people in our story today as filthy rich one of the strongest empires in world history and so the god's people the israelites are in exile bondage captivity prisoners of war in persia while there some of the great stories of the old testament unfold you have daniel in the lion's den shadrach meshach and abednego in the burning fiery furnace But we're going to get to, on the tail end of exile, our story today centers around four people. The most famous of the four, 
is the queen. Then her husband, the prime minister, and the queen's first cousin, Esther. Her husband, King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, prime minister, Haman. And Esther's first cousin, who really acts more like an uncle. I kind of look at him as like Uncle Morty, but Mordecai was actually Esther's first cousin. Now, while in exile, Esther becomes famous for her beauty. Ahasuerus has Esther brought into his harem. They spend an extended period of time beautifying her even more. Ahasuerus takes her in as his queen. Now, Haman was the prime minister. You'll see today he was promoted. You'll see today he had power. You'll see he had prestige. You'll see he had prominence. But one thing triggered Haman, and it was his own arrogance. If you're looking for a guy in the Bible who was full of pride, Haman is your man. Now Mordecai, Esther's cousin, was a Jewish leader. Not just was he a Jewish leader, but he was an ardent follower of the Lord. He would be at the gate of the palace as Haman would come each day into the palace. And because of the edict set forth by the king, the people were to bow to Haman. But for Mordecai, that was a no-go. Because his allegiance and his devotion was to God, the God of heaven, and no man. And day after day, as Haman would enter the gate and all would bow except Mordecai, Haman's heart was filled with hatred and rage and animosity and anger, and it got the best of him. So much so that he built a gallows to have Mordecai hung, and then he plotted a, a, a path forward on how to eradicate the entire Jewish population in a mass genocide. His pride took him all the way to desiring to kill Mordecai and all of Mordecai's people, God's people, the Jews. Now what I want us to do today is just take two snapshots in the book of Esther that'll kind of hone in on how Haman got triggered by his own pride. And then we'll see that even though people around us may not, you today may not be, pride may be not your biggest issue, but maybe you would say there are others who are scheming and planning and strategizing your demise, your ruin, your, uh, you, they're trying to tear you down, they're spreading things that aren't true. Whatever the case may be, you'll see that how God can redeem that in your life too. And then we'll all be reminded as we look at the example of Haman, how all of us are susceptible to pride.
And so I want us to take our Bible and go to Esther chapter number 3. Because we only have time to look at two snapshots, what I'm going to ask you or encourage you to do is take about an hour of time, maybe today on this your Sunday or sometime this week, in probably 60 minutes or less, in one sitting you can read the entire book of Esther, 10 chapters, and really get the big picture of what's happening. Esther chapter 3, though, in verse number 1, we'll begin, and I'll read down through verse number 11. It says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. So Haman gets promoted, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him. So he's advanced, and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had so commanded concerning him but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai why do you transgress the king's commands and when they spoke to him day after day he would not listen to them they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is in the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month in which the month of Adar then Haman said to King Ahasuerus there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you and the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Now I'll go over to Esther chapter 5. And the other snapshot we're going to look at is verses 9 through 14. But as we read Esther chapter 5, I need audience participation. So everybody's going to get to participate in the reading of the text of, the, of Esther chapter 5. Now here's what you're going to do. You're actually going to do two different things. First of all, there's going to be occasions when I read that you are going to cheer. Now, just to give you some sense of what this cheer should look like, it would be as if your daughter just hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning with a full count, bases loaded in the national championship peewee little league game. She just won the championship. That's your girl. It would be as if your son caught the winning touchdown as time expired on the clock in the 
travel football arena league of the world and he just scored the winning touchdown so that's your son that's your daughter that's your grandson that's your granddaughter okay and you're going to cheer like that so in order to prep us all we're going to practice okay in a moment i'm going to count to three and you're going to cheer and i am telling you i could not i thought last night it was going to take practice four o'clock blew me away out of the gate i'm like you guys rock it and you are the example for the weekend and then the six o'clock service blew them away okay so i'm talking full-on cheer like your kid your grandkid just made it happen all right so i'm gonna count to three and then we're just gonna cheer you ready here we go one two three Woo! Woo! all right that's good all right you guys are good you're fine we need no more practice all right but as i said though you're going to get to do two things one you're going to get to cheer the other it's as if the snot-nosed kid across the street just scored the winning touchdown against your kid's team it's like the neighborhood bully the girl who picks on every girl in town like she just hit the home run in the bottom of the ninth bases loaded full count and won the championship so there's going to be a time in the reading of scripture today and you hear me clearly you will never get the chance to do this ever again in the middle of one of my sermons but today and today only there will be a time in the reading of esther chapter five that you're going to get to boo okay so i'm going to count to three we're just going to practice that the bully in town just scored here we go ready one two three boo all right we're all set now here's when you're going to cheer and here's when you're going to boo when i say the name haman you're going to boo when I read the name Mordecai, you're going to cheer. So we are in Esther chapter number 5, and I'm going to begin in verse number 9, and you're going to get to do your thing right away. Remember, Haman, you boo. Mordecai, you're going to cheer. Verse number 9, the Bible says, And <laughs> went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but when... Saul in the king's gate he neither rose nor trembled before him he was filled with wrath against Mordecai nevertheless restrained himself and went home he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh and recounted to them the splendor of his riches he recounted to them the number of his sons and all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king then said even queen esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared and tomorrow also i'm invited by her together with the king yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as i see the jew sitting at the gate then his wife zeresh and all his friends said to him let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have hanged upon it then go joyfully with the king to the feast this idea pleased and he had the gallows made the book of Esther 
was written for this purpose so that the children of Israel would never forget to celebrate the religious holiday of Pur or Purim. The book was written so that there would be a national religious holiday and feast of Purim. Esther chapter 9 tells us that from the writing of this book, which we do not know its author, perhaps it was Mordecai, that they would celebrate every year this feast day of Purim. This year, thousands of years later, Jews will celebrate the feast of Purim. What's the celebration about? Pur, as we read in chapter number three, is actually, the Hebrew word pur is actually synonymous with a Greek word we discovered in the messianic prophecy connected to Christ in Psalm 22 last week. When the story unfolded in the New Testament, do you remember the sixth saying of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? And that was said over what happening? It was said over the soldiers casting lots for the garments of Christ. In Psalm 22, David prophesied that they would divide the garments of the Messiah who would come and they would gamble for those garments. It would become known in the New Testament as the casting of lots. The equivalent to New Testament casting of lots was the Old Testament casting of the purr. And so in Esther chapter number three, they, they were trying, Haman and those that were allies with him were trying to decide the day of the genocide of the Jewish people. And the way that they decided the day and the date of the genocide was through the casting of purr. To this day, on the feast day of Purim, when the Jewish people gather, they read the entire book of Esther. And as they read all 10 chapters of Esther, every time they get to Mordecai's name, the Jewish people to this day cheer. And every time they read Haman's name, they boo. They even build wood cragger devices that they clank together so that his name is drowned out and cannot be heard in the reading of the book. My friend, you just celebrated like the Jewish people have done since Esther chapter 5. Now what I want you to see in this story today is that Esther is part of a much larger story that runs all the way from Abraham to Christ and through Christ to the church. For you see, if Haman had succeeded, the Jewish people as a whole would have been destroyed and, the God, and God's redemptive narrative, the story that he was writing in and through the descendants of Abraham would have come to an end because there would have been no lineage 
of Abraham through which the Messiah would be born. So if Haman had succeeded, there would be no narrative written through the descendants of Abraham, there would be no fulfillment in the birth of Christ, and there would therefore be no gospel and no Christian church as we know it today. What you will see in the midst of Haman's hatred and pride and arrogance that got the best of him, that even though things in in Haman's life that triggered so much adversity for other people, here's what we must understand, friend. Get this, are you ready? God was still at work. God is always at work. And just because you may not believe that God is at work, just remember, he is always always working god worked through esther's darkest days when she was put in the king's harem god was at work when uncle morty convinced esther to go before the king risking her own life because countless people didn't have the scepter raised when they came in uninvited He might not raise the scepter if he were in the wrong mood. And that could be the end of Esther's life. But Mordecai said to Esther, for such a time as this. And she went in. And in that challenging moment of her life, and where she risked it all, God was at work. And the victories that came forth and out of even Haman's evil plot that ended up ultimately thwarted and the Jews' destruction was uh, not fulfilled, we see that God was at work. In fact, the message of Esther is clear. God is in total control even when life seems utterly out of control. Like, Pastor, you don't get what people are doing. You don't get what they're saying. You don't understand the toxic environment in which I live. Pastor, I don't even know how I go to work on Monday. Pastor, I don't even know how I stay married. Pastor, I don't even know what to do with my son or my daughter. Uh, Pastor, the things that are being said, the schemes that are being hashed out, the evil that's behind it all, the way that they look at me and the way that they treat me. Pastor, what do I do? You remember that God is in control and God is always in control. And when things seem absolutely out of control god is utterly in control he was at work now haman was susceptible to pride for a number of reasons he had been promoted he had gotten a pay raise he was in a position he had prestige he had power he went to the palace every day the scripture told us in chapter three that uh, uh, Haman was advanced. It indicates that uh, with Haman's position came a lot of money. It seems like Haman got a pay raise. Now remember, the empire of Persia was filthy rich. So Haman gets this pay raise. It appears to me to be more than 2.5% cost of living. And it seemed like it was a really good pay raise. So he's got a, he's got a, he's got a lot of money. But then in, his, in addition to that, he, he's got a position. He has, in fact, the scripture tells us that he's got an office above everybody else in the kingdom. Now, that office, I'm sure, came with an office. When he went to the palace, I bet that was an impressive office that he went to. I'm sure it wasn't in the tunnels. I'm sure it wasn't in the lower level. In fact, I'm sure it had not just nice furniture, but it had a view. It was probably the nicest office uh, there in the palace. You remember the nicest office you've ever been to? 
I remember it like it was yesterday. It was almost three decades exactly ago, 30 years ago, 1992. And uh, I had recently graduated from Bible college, and um, I was in uh, downtown Dallas. And I got in this elevator to one of the tallest buildings in downtown Dallas, and the button was pushed, and that elevator just kept going and going and going. It was like ding, 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 ding. And I got off the elevator, and I walked into an office suite that blew my mind. The decor, the furnishings. I mean, you could just feel how special this was. The secretary took me past her desk, and she brought me into the main office. This thing was impressive. Wall-to-wall floor-to-ceiling windows and it overlooked the entire skyline of the city of Dallas. It was the office of the most famous pastor in America. He pastored the largest Southern Baptist church in the world. Under his ministry of 50 years as pastor, he grew the church from 7,000 to over 26 thousand people dr w a chriswell was one of the early expositors of the word who preached word by word through the scriptures where he left off sunday morning he picked up sunday night where he left off sunday night he picked up wednesday night and where he left off wednesday night he picked up next sunday morning he had just was in the twilight years of his ministry about ready to retire and he welcomed me into his office um at the time 22 years old and just getting started in ministry it would be just a couple months later that i would go to first baptist church of Saxe, just outside of dallas and for the first time i'd hear w.a chriswell preach for the first time and it was standing room only in that country church and he preached with the spirit of god upon him as a 22 year old kid i could not believe what i was hearing if you ask wa chriswell what was the most inspiring sermon he ever preached of over 5,000 sermons at first baptist dallas he said it was december 31st of 1960 he started on Uh, new year's eve at 7 p.m and he began to preach a sermon entitled the scarlet thread that that runs through the whole bible and he started at 7 p.m on december 31st 1960 and he preached into the new year over five hours he preached on the scarlet thread that runs through the bible and they say that it was people standing along the back of the wall and seated in the aisles for over five hours preaching in the largest auditorium in america at the time when i came to pastor parkview in 1997 one of the things i liked to do was go to the pastor's conference at first baptist jacksonville at that time it was the largest southern baptist auditorium sat over eight thousand people in downtown jacksonville and i remember as a young preacher going to pastor's conference 
I'll never forget hearing Dr. Adrian Rogers preach for the great pastor from Bellevue Baptist. I had never heard him preach. He was in the twilight years of his ministry. I heard Adrian Rogers preach out of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. It shook my soul. I remember it 30 years later. When 1998, unbeknownst to anybody, at the age of 89, W.A. Criswell would stand in the pulpit at First Baptist Jacksonville one year after I started Parkview. He'd stand in the pulpit at First Baptist Jacksonville at Pastors Conference after getting transfusions, uh, blood transfusion earlier that day. They had to help him into the pulpit. Dr. Jerry Vine said it would end up being the most inspirational hour in the history of First Baptist Jacksonville. And there in 1989, January of 89, uh, I'm sorry, January of 98, W.A. Criswell, unbeknownst to anybody, preached his last sermon. And he preached on, give me that old-time religion. As a 22-year-old kid, when I stood in that office, overlooking that Dallas skyline, do you know Criswell treated me like I was the pastor of First Dallas? He treated me like he was visiting my office. He treated me like I was one of the great expositors. Haman is no W.A. Criswell. Haman's got the best office. He's got the power. He's got the prestige. He's got the position. He's got the pay raise. And he's full of himself. And it's what tripped him up. It's what did him in. Haman was obsessed with Mordecai, but perhaps he was more upset because he knew that Mordecai's God demanded absolute, complete devotion, and Mordecai would never switch his devotion to Haman. Now, all these years, Haman's evil name has been blotted out symbolically every time the text is read in the Jewish people's celebration of Purim. And Haman's life is an example. Listen to me, friend. Haman's life is an example of the fate that faces all those who oppose God and who oppose his people. Hear me clearly. Opposing God and opposing his people did not work for Haman. It did not work for Adolf Hitler. And it will not work for the Antichrist. But you hear me, friend. It also doesn't work for any Tom, Dick, or Harry, or Mary, Susie, or Jane. Anybody that opposes God comes out on the short end of the stick. And you may think you're getting your laughs in at God and God's people. But I'm telling you, God gets the last laugh. Our church has been in an incredible season of growth that's unprecedented. But I want to call your attention to the fact that it was nine months ago, almost exactly, that the growth of our church took off in a way that we had never seen before. Oddly enough, I was very concerned on a particular weekend nine months ago that our church attendance would specifically in one weekend go down because it was that weekend that the liberal media took me and our church to task and here's what I want you to know and hear me clearly that next weekend our church grew and it never looked back and God got the last laugh 
I had a lady in our community tell me this week, she said, Pastor, I don't go to your church, but I invite people to go to your church all the time. (laughs) And she said, the reason I do is because I know your church is willing to take a stand for what's right. And that you guys are not afraid to preach the Bible. She said, it's not where my family's been going to church for decades, but I tell people about your church all the time. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter who opposes God or who opposes his people. In the life of Haman and everybody since, it will always be true that you cannot stand against the Lord and win. When we read Esther, we see the pride in in Haman's life so strongly. But you know what's interesting? I don't think Haman saw it. You know, if you said to me today, hey, Greg, who are the three most arrogant people you know? Do you know I could tell you their names? If you said to me, who are the three most arrogant people that live in Flagler County? I could come up with their names. If you said to me, who are the three most arrogant pastors you know? I could spit them out. But if you ask me to talk about my own pride, I'd have a hard time telling that story. Because I can see the toothpick in anybody's eye. I just have a hard time seeing the telephone pole sticking out of my own eye. (laughs) As seriously dangerous as pride is, it is equally hard to spot. When it comes to diagnosing our hearts, those of us who have the disease of pride have a challenging time identifying our sickness. Pride infects our eyesight causing us to view ourselves through a lens that colors and distorts reality. Pride will paint even our ugliness and sin as beautiful and commendable. So let Haman be an example to all of us that while it is easy to see pride in others, it's hard to see it in our own life. I want to give you just a few telltale statements that help us recognize pride in our own life. Just quickly, see if you ever say any of these things or think about how often you say them, or think about what is your go-to of these. Just quickly, number one, I need to know everything that's happening around here. Number two, you don't appreciate everything I do. Number three, they'll do what I say or else. Number four, if I left, all this would fall apart. Number five, did you just hear what I said? And number six, I don't need anybody else's opinion. I know I'm right. (laughs) Your laughter gives you away. So what do we do? How do we fight against our own pride? Ready? Just quickly, some thoughts. How do we fight against our, our pride? Number one, we guard our heart. Number one, we guard our heart. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse number 23 to guard our heart because out of it springs or flows all of life. Now, when the Bible is talking about the heart, it's not talking about the pumping vessel. When the Bible's talking about the heart, it's talking about the center of our person. It's talking about who we are in our essence. It's talking about the core of our being. We have to guard the core of who we are. We have to guard the center of our soul. We have to be vigilant in protecting who we are down in our person because what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And so we have to guard our heart. First way to fight against our own pride. Number two, we admit the embarrassing. 
Hmm. Here's interesting. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the importance of confessing our sin to God. But Christ's half-brother, who wrote the New Testament book on the wise things to do, in the sixth verse of James 5, James said, not to confess your sin to God, but to confess your sin, your falls, your flaws, your less than stellar moments to one another. So I just ask you, when was the last time you said to somebody that's in your inner circle, hey, let me tell you about how I blew it the other day. Let me tell you the other day when I played the part of a fool. You'll never believe what I did to my spouse. You'll never believe the reaction that came out of my mouth to my coworker. I was out of my ever living mind at a red light the other day. Let me tell you how foolish I am. Let me tell you how I blew it. When was the last time you said anything like that? When was it the last time that you admitted when you blew it? See, I fear too many Christians are trying to live in a perpetual Halloween wearing a mask of sorts, hiding who they really are. Listen, if you want to deflate your ego and you want to let the air out of your arrogance, drop the mask, stop trying to save face and impress people and do so by admitting the plain truth about yourself and let people know when you blow it and be honest about it because it'll keep you from being arrogant. Guard your heart. Admit the embarrassing. Number three, promote other people the way to guard against pride is we promote other people this is awesome we really don't have time to do it but we got to do it okay go to philippians chapter 2 and i'm almost done i promise no more than 30 more minutes all right so (laughs) listen if chris well could preach for five hours you guys are you guys are in good shape all right i'm kidding we're just just a couple minutes here This is crazy. The greatest Christian outside of Jesus Christ, church-planting, missionary, extraordinaire, the Apostle Paul writes, and my friend, he's writing to the church of Philippi. It's a a letter of joy. They were a great church. Things were going really well. Paul had every opportunity to toot his own horn. Chapter 2 and verse number 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news of you for I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how he's a son with a father. As a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I'll come to you myself also. Verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker and my fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For Epaphroditus has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he, you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm more eager to send him 
therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that i may be less anxious so receive him in the lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me hey let me tell you he said let me tell you about my man timothy he's like a son to me when he gets there you receive my boy he's a preacher of the gospel unlike any other hey i'm gonna send a paphroditus dude almost died god spared him showed mercy to him and me when he gets there treat my fellow soldier with honor and just love the way that paul promoted others See, we live in a society that promotes itself. But I think Christians ought to be about the business of promoting others. So how do we guard against pride in our heart? How do we prevent pride? How do we battle it? Well, we, we guard our heart. We admit the embarrassing. We promote other people. And then lastly, we, re- we remember that we are created for His glory and not our own. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. Say all. all. From him, through him, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Church, we have to be careful. Listen to me, please. Let us not build a worship center out of our own arrogance. Let us not build a new auditorium with an attitude of, hey, look what we've done. But rather, might the motivation of building a building be clearly about the glory of God. Let us never take credit for ourselves that belongs to the Lord. I met with our staff this last week, and I I do so every other month. Meet with them all and just try and share my heart with them, cast a little vision, speak to them out of Scripture. And we were together this week, and I spoke to them on this subject, how to act when you ride the largest wave in our ministry's history. Five things. And the first thing I told them was, remember, what's happening is a God thing. This is not a Greg thing, and this is not a good staff thing, and this is not a great program thing and a good budget thing, and a great ministry thing. This is a God thing. We will continue to hide behind the cross of Jesus Christ. We will continue to preach the gospel unadulterated and unfiltered. We will continue to preach Jesus and know that if we lift him up, all men will be drawn unto him. And at this point in our ministry, as much now as ever, we must get out of the way and recognize that what God is doing is not a Greg thing, and it's not a good staff thing, and it's not a great people thing. It is a God thing. And we guard against pride in our own heart when we give him the glory and we don't seek it for ourselves. Friend, Haman, yeah. He got tripped up by his own arrogance. I get it. You're no Haman, but might he be an example of what pride will do to somebody? It'll trigger you 
and it'll trip you up. So let's guard against it. And remember, while you're working through, this is resurrectable. This is redeemable. When things seem absolutely out of control, God is utterly in control. Let us pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, just take a moment and try and identify an area of pride in your life. Just, just right now, in, in this moment, just identify an area of pride in your life and just bring it before the Lord. Say, Lord, this is where I, if I have an area where I have an issue with pride, this is it, Lord. Shine your light of truth on it. I bring this before you and I confess it. Help me to walk in humility. Pride brings destruction, but the humble find grace. Lord, today's text, may it speak to our hearts and it not just be a gathering of information, but may we leave here today making application in our home, with our kids in our marriage with our buddies with our co-workers with our neighbors might we push back against the pride in our own heart and we do these things for your glory God thank you for writing a story in our life too in your name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.